I, I say that that's where I sort of had my butt kicked by farmers who were, uh, you know, really doing incredible things. And I had this opportunity to work with them and, and learn about what farmers actually do. That's Danielle Nirenberg, and you're listening to Ending Hunger and Malnutrition. Can it really be done? I'm Sivan Yosef, Senior Program Manager at the International Food Policy Research Institute, IFPRI. In this podcast, we talk to the world's top scientists, policymakers, and practitioners about ending hunger and malnutrition in under a decade. We teamed up with a group of passionate, engaged public health grad students at the University of Michigan. Each episode, one of the students will conduct an interview for us. Big Ag is getting, well, bigger. Thanks to a few mergers during the past year, 60% of the world's seed supply and 70% of its agricultural chemicals could soon be controlled by just three companies. Wina Hisamatsu talks to Danielle Nirenberg, co-founder and president of Foodtank, a nonprofit focused on building a safe and healthy global food system. When Food Tank is talking about building a more sustainable food system, we're trying to look at it from a couple of different ways. You know, agricultural systems that are, are resilient and, and regenerative. Uh, we want a more economically sustainable food system where farmers are making money and, and not driven uh, to less environmentally sustainable practices because they're not making as much money as they, they can or should. And we're looking at it in a socially sustainable way. Are we treating workers and animals and uh, the land in, in the best ways? Are we being humane with the food system? W one of the things that we try to do at Food Tank is really highlight stories of hope and success and what's working on the ground so that those examples and case studies can get to a wider audience. So, Danielle, you've clearly done a lot of work on this issue. Um, what are some of the major lessons you've taken away from these experiences? You know, one of the biggest things that I've learned is that, you know, while we in the West think that we have a lot of information to share with farmers, you know, in, in poor or um, less developed countries, I think that the reverse is really actually more true. There, there's a lot of information that can be shared from farmers in the global south that will help all of us, you know, whether we're farmers or eaters, to build a, a more sustainable food system. I think the ways that farmers in other parts of the world have been dealing with the impacts of climate change and drought or flooding or or other problems, we have a lot to learn from. You know, when we when we have droughts in the United States, whether it's in the, the Midwest or California, farmers are kind of, you know, thrown off kilter. There's a shock to it. And, and we have a lot to learn from farmers who are really dealing with this every day in other parts of the world. What exactly got you started into this type of field and what, what propels you forward? It's an interesting story. I, I grew up in a very um, rural community of, of Defiance, Missouri, and I grew up with farmers. My, my parents weren't farmers. They, you know, had moved from the city to, to raise their kids in the fresh mm -hmm. air. And I had this kind of idyllic childhood, you know, with a big garden and my mom canned anything that would fit into a jar. And, you know, I, I had a pony and, you know, but I, I kind of wanted nothing to do with it. I thought mm -hmm. farmers were destroying the environment and I, I blamed them for a lot of things and went on to 
uh, get my undergrad in environmental policy, and then um, went to become a Peace Corps volunteer in the Dominican Republic. And I I say that that's where I sort of had my butt kicked by farmers who were, uh, you know, really doing incredible things. And I had this opportunity to work with them and, and learn about what farmers actually do. And it it made me regret not learning more from the farmers that I had grown up with and, uh, you know, really understanding the connections between nutrition and the environment. So that's sort of what led me to get my um, degree uh, at, at the Friedman School of Nutrition Science and Policy at Tufts University and really focus um, the next, you know, part of my life on, you know, telling those stories and communicating to a wider audience about what are the, the obstacles, obviously, that farmers face around the world, but also the success mm-hmm. and innovation that they're coming up with. Sometimes we hear the term big ag that's used in conversations about the food systems that we have today. So who is big ag and like, how are they shaping the sustainability of our food systems? The, the folks who make up big ag are, are actually a lot of times family farmers a lot of what happens is we tend to demonize big versus small and that they're, you know, not recognize that these are all people who want to, uh, they all, they're all working towards the same goal as many of us. I think what has happened though is with the sort of corporatization of the food system is that we've lost a connection to where our food comes from. And I think, you know, companies, big companies have done a, a very good job at sort of removing you know, that, that connection and they've been responsible for it. But what, what inspires me more than that is this growing trend in, in consumer demand for better transparency. And I think that's caused even a lot of these larger companies to, to take action and, and, and sort of um, be, you know, in some cases greenwash what they're doing so that it looks more environmentally or socially sustainable without really doing it. But it's also causing a lot of companies to, you know, to take on different practices or at least acknowledge that, you know, they they can't sort of fool consumers anymore. So what are some of the efforts that you see nowadays to preserve sustainable food systems? Well, I mean, I think one of the most interesting organizations that I've had the opportunity to work with and actually see their projects on the ground is, is Slow Food International. And they're often thought of as a really, you know, sort of foodie organization, just really concerned about taste and and how food looks. But what Slow Food does around the world is very inspiring. And so one of their their biggest efforts is actually run by a a friend of mine. And uh, when I first met him, he was working on a project called Project DISC, or Developing Innovations in School Cultivation. And sort of the idea behind it was to teach school children, you know, anywhere from nursery age to high school age, the value of the indigenous foods that were were native to their communities. And so he was helping them build school gardens. He was um, helping teachers and and, um, uh, women in the community incorporate those foods into school meals. And he was teaching some of the older kids how to market those crops so that they can make a living off of them. And the, the project that he's now doing with Slow Food is called 10,000 Gardens in Africa. And it's really to scale up this idea of valuing what, what is already growing around you. And I think what the, in, in sort of the larger context, these are also foods that are, are often highly nutritious. 
They're often resilient to pests and disease or drought or flooding. And there's so many other examples. Um, You see it with the efforts to preserve indigenous and rare livestock breeds around the world. And, And so I think there's a lot of, you know, there's an undercurrent of we have to preserve these things, not just because, you know, they taste good or we... Um, you know, need them for, you know, the next season, but that we, we want our children and their children to keep eating them and that they have a lot of value. And I think that's one thing that, you know, companies have maybe instilled across the world that, you know, imported foods are better and something that comes out of a box is something that's better for you than something that comes out of a garden. And so I think being able to, to reverse that trend is, is it's already happening, obviously. Um, we need more of it. And unfortunately, those projects don't always get the attention or support that they need or the investment. So Danielle, do you um, see a viable means of mobilizing change from the top down? Or do you think it requires more efforts from grassroots communities? I mean, I think it needs to come from all angles. We can't, this can't just be a top down approach. It can't be only grassroots. That's where most of the efforts have come from. But we, we need government leaders to recognize especially in places like sub-Saharan Africa, that, you know, the what their own farmers have been growing for generations is important. And, you know, over the last 40 years in sub-Saharan Africa, you've seen governments, you know, whose GDP depends on farmers really ignore their farming populations. And I hope with new and expanded efforts around not just preserving, you know, indigenous crops, but other agricultural development and and nutrition projects that these leaders will recognize that they need to value what is literally in their own backyard. It seems that we continually see arguments for the use of of technology in agriculture pitted against the use of farming practices that uses Mm -hmm. more ecology-based methods. Um, Do you think it is possible to have an agricultural system in which the use of ecological practices and technology coexist? Absolutely. I see so much opportunity in the combination of of what I refer to as high and low technologies, using drones themselves or using our cell phones in different ways to help farmers. Those can be combined with agroecological practices. And I think, you know, a lot of studies have come out over the last several years that really point to agroecological uh, practices being the way forward. We simply won't have a choice. Our, our fossil fuel um, resources are are limited. What is Futang doing recently or ha- ha- what have they been doing in the past um, to help us move in the direction of a sustainable food system? One of the big things that we've undertaken over the last couple of years is convening these food tank summits where we bring together different food system leaders and, and we bring together Uh, an unlikely uh, group of folks. We've had, you know, representatives of big corporations on the same stage with small farmers. We've had women, you know, scientists sit next to folks who believe in a very traditional or or male-centered food system. You know, we've tried to bring together as many different voices so that they could actually learn from one another. We're not going to agree on everything or most things even, but we need to all be sort of talking to one another and making sure that we're actually listening and and finding the places where we can have, you know, synergy and, and where we can have more agreement. Because until we do that, 
then, you know, this idea of a sustainable food system is also not going to come about. And it's, you know, we, we need to get out of our own heads and start talking to others. Danielle Nirenberg is the co-founder and president of Food Tank, a nonprofit focused on building a safe and healthy global food system. You can learn more about her work by visiting foodtank.com. Rina Hisamatsu is a grad student in the University of Michigan School of Public Health. This podcast is a joint activity of IFPRI's Nourishing Millions Project and the Department of Nutritional Sciences at the University of Michigan School of Public Health. You can subscribe to this podcast and learn a lot more about IFPRI by going to the IFPRI website, www.ifpri.org, or the Nourishing Millions website, nourishingmillions.ifpri.info. Today's show was produced by Natalie Manichius, Rina Hisamatsu, Andrew Jones, Zach Rosen, and me, Sivan Yosef. Zach Rosen edited our interview. Music from today's show comes from the Free Music Archive. Until next time, let's innovate, learn, and speed up progress on ending hunger and malnutrition.